Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Welcome to another episode of the Fifth Quarter Conversations Beyond the X's and O's with Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. And joining us tonight is speaker, author, and I guess former, or do you still do? Do you still do some coaching, Sean? I mean, I know you're coaching people, but do you still get around to basketball? Any? Yeah, not uh, not in a gym or locker room. It is a little bit of a different style of coaching I do now with some of the corporate uh, leaders that I've uh, had the benefit of working with. But uh, yeah, the, the coaching and basketball stuff is more in the rearview mirror. Gotcha, gotcha. Sean Glaze joins us tonight, and uh, Sean, thank you so much for 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 being a part of this. Uh, let's start with your, your latest project. Um, on teammates, and uh, really curious to know how. Um, what was the inspiration for Wallace and Max? Oh well, I am a grateful to be here. Really looking forward to sharing some hopefully uh, useful stuff with your audience. Great to spend the time with you, Layson and Jeff. Um, and, and like you mentioned, my background is absolutely as a high school basketball coach, and it's as a coach that I know every coach that's listening uh, is very much aware of the fact that it, you don't just coach. You know, if coaching was all that was involved with the job, it would be a far more attractive job, right? Uh, there are so many thousands of peripheral things that you're dealing with, and uh, I probably could have gone into amateur psychiatry, probably could have done all kinds of different things. But uh, but one of the things that I focus on and, and what became kind of a spring board for what I'm doing now is is obviously realizing early in my career uh, that what I was doing was not working by itself. And I made the, I know, Lacey, you're fantastic with X's and O's. You've got that background. And that was really where I focused. When I took my first head coaching job, I was convinced because of my lack of experience and knowledge and, and being that rookie coach that I was confident and I was prepared. And man, I had some great X's and O's that were going to dominate the universe. And man, we we're going to have a great press attack and our inbound stuff and the plays were going to run. And I was so excited and energetic and we implemented all that and we did everything we knew to do in terms of the skill development stuff and the preseason and the strategy stuff in season. In my very first year as a head coach, we lost 21 of our 26 games, and I was devastated and uh, and probably more upset because after you have that obligatory end-of-the-season talk in the locker room with the kids and, you know, proud of what we did, we're going to be better, and I'm, you know, really excited about the future, and I meant every word, but the message was kind of flat because they're there after a 5-21 and 21 season, and I go over and I look in the mirror and I realize I'm the person responsible for making things better. And the problem was I had done to that point everything that I knew to do. So I knew all about the X's. I, I really worked hard to be prepared on that side. And it was only later as I began to spend time that offseason working with not just my assistant coach and reading as much as I could and going and visiting some coaches around the Southeast to learn more about what I had neglected that I began to spend uh, a little bit more time on what actually determined the success of our strategy, and that's culture. And so it really has been my passion and, and, and opportunity to work with hundreds of leaders now to help them hopefully understand far earlier in their walk uh, the importance of culture. If strategy is what you want to do, 
culture will always determine how well your people do it. And so that's really the kind of beginning of my journey. And obviously I didn't begin speaking or writing or doing team building or conference keynotes or coaching at that point, but that was really the beginning of me realizing that, uh, I had a whole lot more to learn. And then as I got a little bit better and our programs got a little bit more uh, consistent in terms of the culture that we wanted to pour into and establish, uh, I began to realize that some of that stuff that we were doing would translate not just to other sports and to other levels of sport with working with your team building and doing stuff with college programs, but there were a number of organizations, corporate, nonprofit, and otherwise that were also working with teams of people and the same issues we had in our locker room, the more conversations I had with leaders were the issues they were dealing with in their conference rooms as well. So it was something that I saw an opportunity. I've been unbelievably blessed to be able to, uh, to work with and share with thousands since then. Well, that right there is something I think Jeff and I both resonate with just because we have gone through something very similar. And Jeff and I have kind of a belief that, you know, as you mentioned with the coat, you know, working with athletes, working with business people is that the skill set's the same. The only difference is the scoreboard that you use to measure, you know, the performance. What do you what do you feel is the reason why we put so much emphasis on X's and O's when, like you said, you you get down the road and realize it's more soft skills. I went through that same paradigm shift. Jeff has gone through that same paradigm shift. Why? Why do you think that? Why do you think that is? Well, I, and, and I've been more and more away, amazed and grateful to see how many people that you guys and I hopefully and, and maybe some, some more experienced uh, you know, coaches and leaders have recognized that that really is something that I think that many people going into whatever leadership role, they're so focused on the number of things that need to be done that I think we end up putting on blinders and uh, and in my case specifically, I was far more left-brained and I had never been much of a connector. That's something that was really an intentional thing for me. You know, the last half of my career was to be intentional and to really emphasize some of those connections and relationships that lent themselves to the culture and some of the expectations and the, the accountability and the, the trust that we needed to build when you needed to have relationships strong enough to support the weight of truth. And I think that that's something that uh, that you see not just in athletics, obviously, but translate over into just about every industry is that uh, leaders, because there's so much on your plate and so much that needs to get done, I think it's easy to have a checklist of things to do. And I think that that's really the, uh, the, the, the major conflict is how do you find time? Because that was even after I began to recognize and I was still coaching the importance of culture and connections and relationships and all the other off the court stuff that determines what happens on the court. Um, you know, how do you find time for that in a practice plan? How do I do that in that two hour window? What do I do to add? And, and so I would find myself as a coach, even 15, 20 years into coaching, um, thinking that we needed to get that next shooting drill in. We needed to do that defensive drill. We needed to go over that set again and I would sometimes squeeze out the stuff that honestly, looking back, would have had far more of an impact on our team is if we had focused upon some of the leadership development and some of the connections and, and cultural things that would have made all the strategy so much more successful. 
Sean, coaches in general, we're very confident, overconfident, self-confident <laughs> at times. How do you get a coach to look in the mirror and reflect that, yeah, I'm pretty good at man defense, press offense, but I really need to work on some of these soft skills. How do you get that, your approach to a coach or a business leader who is very self-confident and probably has done a great job and deserves confidence, but how do you get that message that you need to reflect There's so much in unpacking that question, Jeff, and I appreciate you asking it because I do believe, you know, when I took that very first head coaching job, I was convinced that I was prepared and ready and I was enthusiastic and excited. I knew I was going to go in and make a difference. I carried around that big old bucket of male ego and thinking that I was going to make a huge difference based upon all that stuff that I prepared myself with regarding mostly strategy and, and all the technical stuff. And I think that we sometimes as coaches, we mistake confidence, which is thinking you can help for arrogance, which is thinking you don't need help. And as a young coach, I was so headstrong and so individualistic and so egotistical, honestly, that that I was convinced I had the answers. And so I didn't look to ask questions of people who were certainly available to me as mentors, but I just didn't ask the question or seek the advice or the input from those that were available to me at the time. You know, there's that old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I completely disagree. I think when the student is ready, he or she realizes that the teachers were always there, frustrated and waiting for the student to actually be curious. And so uh, I think that, you know, to the second part of that question is how do you actually get those coaches that may be you know, very prepared and competent in one area, how do you actually get them uh, to recognize that there's a need? And I think that uh, that's one of the things I talk about in my events, whether it's a keynote or a team building event where I'm working with a group, you know, there's, there's four different levels of awareness. And I think that oftentimes we get caught because we're at that first level, which is being unaware. We don't realize some of the stuff that's going on that's affecting us. And I was very much unaware of how culture was affecting my strategy and our team's performance early on as a coach. That second level of awareness is symptom aware. You see the symptoms. You see some of the, the, the problems that come with some of the issues that come with something that maybe you hadn't identified. I remember, you know, Stepan, uh, we just a few months ago went through an issue with our house where we had to replace the entire first floor of our home because we had a horrible water leak, a pipe had burst. When we go downstairs and, and my wife kind of says, you Sean, because she's stepping into wet carpet and there's that squish, right? And hopefully you've never had that squish moment. But if you've ever stepped into wet carpet, you know, there's a symptom. There's a problem I need to address But that's not the third level of awareness. The third level is actually being able to identify what's causing that symptom. Because I actually had players who weren't necessarily receptive to ideas. I had players who weren't, you know, doing some of the things that I knew that we had taught. I had, you know, examples of some of those symptoms but I hadn't really addressed the problem. And the problem was trust and connection and commitment and clarity and some of those things that we get so excited about teaching and, and sharing content that we don't recognize that connection has to always come before content. 
And so you go from unaware to symptom aware to problem aware. And I think where ultimately we want to get is the solution aware. How do we actually go into a season having already set up a system that has solved a lot of the problems that a less experienced coach or leader may not even be aware of? Layson and I talk about we grew up in a generation of sitting at the table of the bar with older coaches and listening. Mm-hmm. Younger coaches now, it's all they care about is recruiting, cutting their teeth, and they listen to YouTube or Twitter and kind of get their philosophy. Do you see a relationship, maybe not an experience, but in terms of age, of awareness relating age to a senior versus a freshman in college or an older coach versus a younger coach? Any relation you have come across? I absolutely believe that there is a difference in maturity. And when I became a more mature coach, I think that that contributed to me becoming far more humble. I think a lot of times inexperience opens the door and, and, and puts us in situations where we do have an opportunity to face plant. And that's ultimately what gives us as a catalyst the, uh, the motivation to look around and realize maybe we're not holding all the answers. Uh, so I think that it's maybe sometimes less a question of age uh, or experience and sometimes maturity because I have absolutely known young players who were just greedy and grateful for advice and opportunities to improve. We would also you know, say that they're probably very, very uh, accomplished college and professional players that still are resentful and resistant to advice and opportunities to improve. I think that maturity is something that absolutely pours into that. And sometimes we become through humility, a little bit more open. And, and that's one of the things, you know, I, I think that that's, you mentioned Layson, and I appreciate you mentioning my book, The Ten Commandments of Winning Teammates. And I'm going to do the, you know, the obligatory plug here with the book itself. And that was one that I had noticed, not just my athletic teams, but when I had started working with corporate and other groups, you know, that I would ask a question that I asked with some of my, my teams later in my career. And before we had our first tryout, before we had our first practice during conditioning, you get all the kids in a classroom that were planning to try out and you give them an index card. And on one side of the index card, you very simply ask them, who's the best teammate you ever had? It's a pretty powerful question. Kind of makes you begin to consider who had that positive impact, who is a really powerful influence on you in some capacity. Maybe it was in athletics, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's in your business, maybe it's in a classroom. Uh, But then the other part of that was the really powerful. And it's not just who is the best teammate, but then on the backside of the index card, what is that trait? What is the characteristic? What did they do that was so special that placed them in that honorable position in your mind and memory? And one of the things I found was the same things kept coming up over and over. And that's going to be things like, you know, they cared about me. They were curious about knowing about me. We built a relationship. You know, they took ownership. They were very appreciative. And these same things that I saw coming up in those responses and comments were ultimately true, not just for athletes, but for people in virtually every industry. And so that was kind of the birth of the 10 commandments of winning teammates. There's these 10 things that virtually every great teammate is going to do. And the payoff was, of course, as a coach, well, those are things and you may, you don't have to be the greatest shooter. You don't have to be the greatest ball handler. You don't have to be the greatest rebounder, but you can do these things and have an unbelievably 
positive impact on our outcomes as a team. And one of the best examples of a teammate that I'll share in my, my um, sessions and programs wasn't a great shooter or ball handler, but she started every game for us one season when we went undefeated in the subregion, largely because she did so many of those things that don't have anything to do with technical skills, but everything to do with interpersonal skills and teamwork. And so that 10 commandments of winning teammates, one of those skills is to stay coachable and want to always improve. And I realized looking back that that was where I used to say that the most important of the 10 commandments is taking individual ownership of results. I eventually, I think, matured into believing that staying coachable, that wanting to continuously improve was the most important. Because if you're coachable, if you have that skill of being coachable, you can pick up any other skill. And so that was the last book that I wrote. And that's the one that I think really focuses upon that idea of how do you inspire first yourself and then your team to really want to thrive in change and to accept advice and to appreciate and apply those ideas that help them to be better. Sean, going with that crossover from the basketball court into business world or the boardroom, how do you handle or advise still trying to be coachable and improve, but someone that got the promotion that you felt you deserved or the CEO, they went outside the firm. I've been the loyal employee and they went out and hired Layson as an outsider. How do you coach those business leaders to get better and accept those things? Wow. Uh, Well, you know, as you're asking that question, Jeff, I'm thinking of obviously a personal experience that's an example, but I can very definitely sympathize with others who have gone through that, not just in the basketball sense in terms of you being offered a job or not offered a job that you felt competent and capable of, or that, that maybe even that you had earned and desired. And how that translates over into the corporate world. Uh, I was, as a young coach, I'd been an assistant at a school for four or five years. And the head coach who'd been there for years ended up leaving. And I felt like I was the most experienced and the, the most competent and the most capable and did the best job probably in the interview. And another guy got the job. And at that moment, when I was informed by the principal that you know, this other guy is the person we've chosen for this reason and that reason, you're going to be fantastic. And I said, you know, listen, I want a job. I think this is a tremendous job, but if this is the one that he wants, then I certainly understand. And I had in that moment an opportunity to either be resentful and become angry or to be curious and to become better. And I think that that's a major choice we have to make because it's easy to resent things. Sometimes we can resent players for not being receptive. We can resent our, our you know, those above us in uh, you know, positions of authority for not answering the way that we'd like them to. And that leads us to being angry versus being curious. And I think that curiosity is such an important thing for us to focus on in moments of difficulty because curiosity opens doors. When we ask the right questions, we begin to get better answers. And one of the best years I had coaching was the year that I stayed at that school. And as an assistant, I knew that at some point I would need to take over a program. 
And this would give me a chance as I helped him transition from assistant to head coach and begin to build some of that culture. I knew that that was going to be basically a dry run for me. And I was going to be better in my next job as a head coach because I'd been through that experience helping him become the head coach. And, and so I think sometimes it's how you look at things. I think that absolutely, though, uh, it goes back to the questions you ask yourself and specifically, you know, the book Staying Coachable, you know, the, the keynote is it's a story with four questions that help you thrive and change. I think that's the difference. When I was a less effective coach, I was command to control telling my people what they needed to do. And when I became a more effective leader, I was far more curious and I asked better questions. And it was by asking questions that you lead people to be desirous and motivated to want to improve themselves. Sean, you mentioned change and, and the importance of being able to uh, accept it, you know, and, and, to, and to learn how to work with it. And I know from a, from a basketball coaching standpoint, change could be your best player going, getting injured or getting in foul trouble or, all of a sudden, you know, a group, you know, for last in the last few years, hey, we've got players out because of COVID. Mm-hmm. How similar is embracing and dealing with change similar to what businesses are having to deal with when it comes to either changing market or now you have people leaving and going into other, you know, taking other jobs? Yeah, well, I, I think change, you know, the, if I were to ask your people listening to this podcast, you know, raise your hand if you like change. You're not going to get any hands go up. Raise your hand if you've actually experienced or plan to experience change. Every hand goes up. And when I talk about change, the initial response of most people, whether it's an athlete or a leader or a coach in some capacity, is, no, I don't like change. Until you say, well, would you like for me to triple your salary? Oh, yes, I sign me up for change. You know, We all like change when it benefits us. The key is, can we actually help them to see how something's going to benefit them? And so uh, when I talk about you know, the, the process of staying coachable, staying coachable isn't about being bombarded with unsolicited advice. We've all kind of received that and rejected and deflected it and kind of kept our blinders on. I'm going to do this the way that I do it. And I think that the way you get past those blinders, you make someone more receptive and, and someone who really is greedy and grateful for improvement as you first have to identify what is it you really want? What is it you're trying to accomplish? What is that end goal? What's the result? What does success actually look like? What's that peak that you're, you know, it's that summit of the mountain you're trying to climb? And until you can define what it is you're trying to accomplish and what success looks like, you know, doesn't matter what I'm telling you, you don't care what I'm saying because you don't see any value because you've not really identified a goal. Now, if as a coach, I recognize change is going to be a constant, not just in terms of recruiting, not just in terms of X's and O's stuff, not just in terms of you know, the, the periphery and, and what my, my players are being bombarded with in terms of social media and other things. There's always going to be a new something to deal with. It's how well do you kind of negotiate and navigate that change, recognizing that you can use every one of those as an opportunity to get closer to that goal if you've really identified the goal. So the first question I think that you need to ask yourself and then you need to ask ultimately in those one-on-one meetings with those players that you want to establish a relationship with and to help through change, you know, what do you want? How can I help you to get that? And if you can identify what that person wants, whether it's you 
a player on the team. Next question is, where are you now? And I think that those two questions are vital because if you can clearly identify a goal, a desire, and you can clearly identify what are your numbers now, not through the filters of, well, here's the excuse for why, and this is how can you clearly identify where are you now? Once you identify that there's a gap between those two things, people begin to, without you prompting them, people begin to recognize, well, if there's a gap there between where I want to be and where I am and doing things the way I know to do them hasn't closed that gap, maybe I need to begin to look at what weakness do I need to admit? And I think that that humility is always a result of identifying those first two things. Sean, how important would you say it is for coaches and business leaders or really anybody that's looking to improve to have someone from the outside be able to kind of look at what they're doing and, and, and offer those suggestions because um, there's a um, air force colonel that I I've, I've studied named John Boyd who talked about how you can't change from within a system because you know, you're kind of, you know, you're already kind of locked in and blindsided about things. You cannot see your blind spot, so to speak. How do you, how do you, how do you help coaches, you know, work through that? Yeah, well, I, I think that that is invaluable, but again, something that not every coach or leader seeks. I think feedback and, 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 and the way we get better is to get feedback. You know, I, I am absolutely, anytime I can get somebody to give me feedback about, you know, where do you see a gap that I don't presently see? That is golden for me because I realize that's an opportunity for me to be better. But that's maturity speaking. That's not the confidence of youth or the arrogance of youth that wants to believe that I've got the answers and the way I'm doing it is the best the way it's ever been done. And, and so I think that first is obviously acknowledging that it's humility that opens us up to some of those conversations and seeking out some of that feedback. But it is absolutely invaluable. That's the reason that we have uh, you know, people above us and below us, and we do surveys and we ask questions, and, and you know those those feedback conversations are the things that propel you forward, so you can have greater performance in whatever role you're a part of. Um, but I think it goes back to the questions that you're asking, and if you're honest with yourself, and you realize these are the results I'm getting, and those are the results I'm wanting and there's a gap there, I think that's what ultimately opens the door for us to seek out mentors and people who can provide advice to help to close that gap. What do you tell coaches or business leaders when you, when you talk to them and you're, you know, you're talking about giving feedback, but then the person on the other side, and all three of us have been there, where mm -hmm. that other person on the other side of the table is resistant. They're, they're not they're not accepting it. They're they're They've got another story in their mind or another narrative that, Hey, I should be getting more points, you know, maybe from a business point, you know, I should be getting more clients or I, you know, I should be getting, you know, uh, more leads here versus this other person. How mm -hmm. do you coach and, and help that leader or that coach to, you know, get them to kind of drop that barrier. And to, like you said, to, to see things as they really are, not as they think it, as yeah. they think it should be. Yeah, I'll tell you that, uh, again, I spent way too many years as a coach pushing people to be better. And invariably, you get the pushback, which is the reflexive, you know, resistant, you know, I'm fine, I'm better than you think, you're just being negative, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that 
it goes back to what are those questions you're asking and how artfully are you asking them to get clear responses? And if you can really focus upon, and that, that's, again, I think some of the beauty of that process of staying coachable is staying coachable isn't about the advice. You know, the advice and the information and the habits come much later, but first you have to prepare the field before you end up dropping the seeds. If you drop seeds on stone, it's not going to grow. There's not going to be any fruit. And so you got to prepare the soil by recognizing what is it that you want? What are you really here looking to accomplish? And where are you now? What are those numbers that you're presently getting? And if you can get clarity on those two things, I think that's absolutely necessary before there's ever any conversation about them being humble enough to admit a weakness or a need. And if they've not admitted a weakness, we're wasting time trying to provide that information without a desire. And again, if you ask you know, who has done that, you know, I've spent decades early as a coach wanting to give advice and information and teaching when there wasn't the desire to accept it. And I think that that's one of the things that uh, more experienced leaders begin to recognize is uh, that need to develop a connection and to establish a need and a desire before we can begin to pour into people and they actually appreciate and apply it. Jeff, before you ask your question, Sean said something there in that in that part that reminded me of something I heard Coach Don Meyer say one time about a gentle rain is better than a hard thunderstorm. <laughs> and, you know, if you think about it, like you just said, preparing the ground, planting that seed, you know, those seeds are not necessarily ready for that big deluge of, of water. It just takes that gentle, that gentle rain coming in to, to make them feel comfortable you know, and then start sprouting, you know, sprouting and, uh, and growing the seeds. But no, I just, I had to, since you said that, Sean, I thought about Coach Meyer. And, well, and, and said that. And Coach Meyer and, and, and something that I'm talking about, it is an unbelievable honor. So thank you. It's a great tie. And I love the part, Sean and, and Layson and I talk often about having that personal board of directors, people that will be honest with you. And I think you can't just say, I'm going to pick my friends or my spouse, or, you know, you've got to really know who will be honest in feedback. But maybe for a young coach, kind of going off lessons, how do you stop outside noise from affecting your team? <laughs> well, um, I, don't, I don't know that you can. Uh, I think that we are surrounded more and more by a cacophony of distractions. I, I think that that is the nature of the beast is that with more and more content coming and more and more people who believe that they have different answers uh, and more and more people in the player's ears and your assistant's ears and in your, your parents' ears and your booster's ears, um, that there is always going to be that surrounding noise. And I think that ultimately it's not about getting rid of the noise, which is always going to be there, but can you create for your team a safe place where you've built enough of a connection, where you've built enough trust, where you've built enough commitment that they recognize, even though mom or your friend or your uncle might love you very much, they don't have access to the information and the commitments and the standards that we've made here. And uh, you know, 
I, I used to have that early in the season conversation after the first 10 or 15 years that I coached, I realized, you know, how important this was. And I would talk at the parents meeting early in the year. And I'd talk with the kids the first couple of games and make sure that they knew that I knew that sometimes the most difficult 20 minutes of any game night was the car ride home because they were going to be getting feedback from mom or dad or uncle or brother or whomever else. And it might be in direct conflict with what they were hearing from us as coaches and as teammates. And when you receive that gift of feedback, and this is something I think that is very powerful for players and for coaches to recognize, because we all get feedback. As coaches, we get feedback. Hey, man, you should have run so-and-so. Hey, next time you need to do such-and-such. Such. You know, feedback is very much a gift. But I also recall when I was young, um, an aunt who didn't know me very well would sometimes send a gift. And as much as I would enjoy getting the gift, I knew I was never going to wear that scar for that shirt or wherever else it was. But when you receive it, you say, thank you. You're very respectful. You're very grateful, but you realize this is not a gift that I'm going to necessarily apply and use. And I think that oftentimes that's a skill that we need to give our players and ourselves. And that's something that we need to equip them with the ability and permission to say, thank you for the advice and for the feedback and for what other people might believe is going to be useful information and then recognize we need to weigh that against what have we actually made a commitment to. And I think that there's two things that any coach needs to focus on before you get into any season. There's two things that are always the unifying elements of any team, whether it's athletic or corporate. And that is what is that compelling common goal? What is that motivating mission that we've all committed to? And the second is, who are the people that we're looking to work with to achieve it? And if you can connect people to a goal and connect people to each other, then the stuff that follows becomes far easier and more effective. But I think that those are the two things you need to spend a great deal of time early on clarifying and, and building in some of that trust because you know that it's going to be there difficult times. I love it. Just so many, so many great, great nuggets. We've all been in great meetings. We've all been in lousy meetings. And it's not just the message, but even if it's corporate or staff meetings or player coaching meetings, what's some advice you would give, not just young coaches, but any coaches or any business leaders, what makes an effective meeting for you? Well, I love the left turn, but this is such an important topic because every great team has a lot of meetings. Every practice is a meeting opportunity. Uh, every pregame is a meeting opportunity. For corporate groups, again, they are just deluged and flooded with meeting after meeting after meeting. And, and so oftentimes it is that that number of bad meetings that they get soured on. And if we can give people a, a a structure or a template to build more effective, more meaningful and productive meetings, it can make a huge difference. And so what I've done specific to your question, Jeff, is and I'm going to be a little bit premature in sharing this. I know you guys would ask at the end, but if your listeners go to um, toolboxstuff.com or if they go to great results, team building, and they sign up for access to my toolbox of leadership and team building kind of goodies and resources and downloads. One of the things on that page, in addition to an audio version of the book that they can download completely for free, I'd love to be able to share that with your listeners, but they can also get a downloadable template 
of what is an effective meeting. And you're obviously going to have the to-do list of things, but there's two things that I think every meeting needs to begin with. And this is something that I am absolutely you know, passionate about because I think that it makes the meeting more meaningful. It enrolls people and engages people and it emphasizes the things that you want meetings to emphasize. Every meeting you have should do two things before you get to the content of who needs to do what when. The first thing is, what are you doing to connect your people? What is a question you can ask? What is a way that you can give people a chance, especially in a virtual world where you have so many people in remote situations? Uh, but this is something I was just talking earlier this afternoon with a guy I used to coach with, and you know, he's looking for ideas to build a little bit more camaraderie in their group moving forward into next season. And the idea of, you know, at least two or three times a week, if not every practice, can you invest four or five minutes in, here's the question of the day. Here's something that we're just going to go around the circle of 12 of us and we're going to share an answer to that question, which gives a little bit of engagement, but makes people feel a little bit more aware of and familiar with and, and close to. And again, those, those relationships are ultimately going to be what allows people to have difficult conversations later in the year. So the first thing is, what are you doing to connect your people? There's got to be some element of connection, even if it's five minutes early in the meeting. The second is, what are you celebrating? And this is something that I, I hate to admit, I didn't do enough celebrating of what you wanted to see repeated. But what gets rewarded will always be repeated. And so what are you celebrating? What are those stats that you want to bring in? What are those video clips that you want to bring in? I would, far later in my career than I like to admit, you know, part of our film work, because we got down to, you know, film was really only about 10 or 15 minutes because you got limited attention span and you want to make sure you're just emphasizing a couple of things or it gets forgotten. But one of the things I would emphasize sometimes in film work is I'd make sure I had about a 20 second and I talked to our manager. I wanted to have about a 20 second shot of our bench at different times through the game. So we could look at, you know, where those guys who need to be involved and engaged, what are they doing? When you can find an opportunity of, hey, here's what we want to see done again. You can, you really celebrate those things and, and something that I wish that I had been more aware of as a young coach is absolutely there's always bad for you to find. There's always something negative for you to criticize. There's always a gap. But there's also always good. There's also always great examples if you want to find them. And if you can find those opportunities to really celebrate at each of those meetings, here's something that Fred did really well. Here's something that Susie did really well. This is, the, this is what when we talk about diving on the floor, when we talk about making sure we're vocal, when we talk about you know, an active bench, when we talk about whatever that might be that you're emphasizing that day. Um, if you can give an example of what you want to see repeated, that celebration becomes powerful. Sean, how much or how often in a meeting in corporate or in the locker room do you welcome feedback or input from other invested parties? Well, I, I, and the old adage to praise in public and to, uh, to maybe criticize in private, I think is really powerful. And this is something that, you know, we did a whole lot of one-on-one -on -one stuff when I was a coach. The most powerful one-on-one -on -one stuff was when I started meeting with kids, you know, once every couple of weeks in the mornings for 10 or 15 minutes just to do check-in stuff. And it had nothing to do with skill or ball handling or finishing around the rim, but it had everything to do with, again, building that connection. And those are the opportunities when, uh, again, I spent way too much time early in my career and probably even through mid-career of giving that feedback 
to people who weren't comfortable receiving it um, and really acting going in a positive way. And, uh, and I think that there are some players you can coach in very different ways. And when you get to know your players better, you get to obviously interact with those players more effectively. But I think that one-on-one meetings are, are just a huge opportunity if you can build those into your calendar, not just for kids to feel a little bit more seen and connected and to just do check-in and find out what's going on with classes and grades and family, et cetera, uh, but also to be an opportunity to ask, hey, what you think about so-and-so? And, and again, through asking questions, a lot of times they know the answer. They don't need to be the nail and you don't need to be the hammer. But if you're just curious, they're going to come up with and acknowledge an issue. And then you can ask, well, what do you think you might can do about that to make it a little better? If you can use questions more effectively, then it becomes their response and it becomes their idea and they're far more committed to it. Sean, we know there's, unfortunately, there's times where on a team, there may be individuals who are just not a cultural fit because their their decision-making is just not what it needs to be. In the business world, there are times where either from performance or other issues that that someone is just is not getting the job done in essence, and, and you have to make a decision. Any thoughts or advice on how coaches and, and leaders should approach that decision in a way that you know, you're, 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 you're protecting your culture, but at the same time, you're also maybe trying to help that individual as well. Yeah. There are a number of people I respect who have basically said in, in, in a shorter way to hire very, very slow and to fire very, very fast. Uh, and I think that that's something that, especially when you get into your know, collegiate basketball is really difficult because oftentimes you're, hiring you're recruiting based upon statistics and measurables and things and you only get limited opportunity to go and see them in different situations and i think that basketball is just like any other industry we often get hired for technical skill and then we get fired for interpersonal skill or the lack of those and uh and i think that sometimes the best thing we can do is be very clear and i think that goes back to the importance of culture if we've taken the time to define this is the type of program, this is the type of culture that you'd be a part of and have some of those conversations. Not everybody's going to be a good fit, and that's okay because what we're looking for as a program may not be what that program is looking for. And so you begin to, once you clarify that culture and how we're going to go about things, you become a little bit more selective about those pieces that will become part of your culture. Ultimately, though, I think that uh, you know sometimes you have somebody on your team that ends up, like you said, not being the best fit or not being as willing to become part of something larger and more significant than themselves in whatever cultural context. And I think that the best thing we can do uh, for people who are not happy in that culture that we've cultivated is to help them find a good fit somewhere else. And I think that, you know, ultimately is, is as successful as I wanted to be as a coach in terms of wins, losses, I knew and at least had the perspective early on in this sense that, you know, I'm not here just for wins and losses. We're here to build relationships and develop people. And I want you to be better. If you're going to be better somewhere else, let me help you to be there because ultimately there's going to be a time, not this season, not next, there's going to be a time five or 10 years down the road where you're going to look back and you may not have appreciated some of what I did or how I did it, the point that it occurred. 
but you'll maybe look back and appreciate with a little bit different perspective the the heartfulness and the meaningful nature of the fact that I'm trying to do the best for you as a person, for you as ultimately the guy that's going to be the business owner or the father or the husband or the wife or the mother. Or the, you know, I think that, that those are the things we need to see in the people that we're leading or how are we helping them to be better and how are we seeing beyond just them as being part of those X's and O's that I was so focused on early on. Sean, who were some influences on you in terms of just how you've kind of put together your philosophy for building a culture and for communicating and um, not necessarily X's and O's, but, but, you know, who's kind of helped shape your, your thinking along these lines? Well, that's, uh, you know, as a young coach, I was voracious with X's and O's and spent all kinds of time, you know, you're watching the videos, you're getting the pamphlets and the handbooks and you're, you know, scribbling in the middle of, uh, you know, lunchtime sitting at your desk and, uh, and so that's something I regret not spending as much time early on in finding mentors that really were successful in terms of culture. Uh, and, and I think something as simple as you, the Dean Smith pointing at a passer. I think he did a fantastic job of building a culture that wasn't, you know, they had the, the Carolina break and there are things that were consistent. But I think that he probably would tell you and the, you know, Roy Williams and others who were part of that Carolina family would tell you that the culture was far more important than the strategy in terms of that program. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge John Wooden fan, the idea. And, and we really did later in my career intentionally pour into our people as people, not just as players. You know, I felt that if, if, if we turn someone into a better person, they're going to be a better teammate and we're going to be a better team. And so we bring in speakers. And I say that because I very much, you know, there are so many people that I stole from at different Nike clinics and had conversations with that are, you know, not even, you know, people that would be names that your audience would recognize that were great in terms of sharing. Hey, here's something that we do. Hey, here's something that we do. Hey, this has been good for us. But there's one gentleman in particular who was at Kennesaw State um, who was uh, uh, just became later in his life, uh, a good friend of mine and somebody that I looked up to and respected. And you guys may know the name Tony Engel, uh, but, uh, but he is somebody that as a husband, as a dad, as a coach, as a mentor, as a motivator, man, if I could have been one-tenth of the dude that he was, I'd have been pretty good. Never had a chance to meet him, but heard so many good things about him. I did. Yes. Coach, now let's get into some fun stuff. We, uh, we always uh, have a bunch of thought-provoking questions that I have typed over a long time. And uh, pick a number from 1 to 65. 1 to 65. Yep. Let's go, uh, let's go 52. All right. So today's thought-provoking question this is great. This is right up your alley. Who impresses you? Who impresses me? Um, this is going to sound very self-serving and, and probably because I'm thinking right now of the fact that I appreciate that she's been walking our dog for the last 40 minutes while we've gone through this conversation. Um, my wife is the most genuine and sincere and unapologetically personable in herself and comfortable in her skin 
Uh, she's not going to change for anybody. And, and, and she was always in the midst of great times, in the midst of very difficult times as a coach, to have that calming influence who's going to give you the perspective and ask you the right questions and remind you to focus on the right things. I think that it's easy sometimes to get caught up in the numbers and, and the things that are really that noise and distraction versus what's really important. And, uh, and so I think that sometimes the simplicity of authentic, uh, somebody with a strong character and a focus on the traits and values that you most want to focus on, uh, that's somebody that impresses me. And I was honestly very, very fortunate. You know, I had assistants through the years that had played for me uh, that were just such incredible examples of what a good man, what a good husband, what a good employee, what a good business owner were supposed to be. Those are the things I wanted to surround our players with because if you have them look up to people who are really good guys, uh, really good women, when I was coaching ladies as well, uh, I think the example of somebody that impresses you by doing the little stuff, the fundamentals, and 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 just being kind and considerate and ambitious, and uh, and and taking care of those things that 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 absolutely impresses me. I'll give you mine before we put Coach Perkins on the spot, and and I'll give you more of a general answer. It's just people I admire are those that can forgive so quickly and so wholly. I don't know if it's faith when I meant wholly with a W that <laughs> they just will forgive and accept. And I struggle, you know, at times just forgiving and moving on with, you know, I might say I forgive, but I still won't forget. Tough to let go with that thing that you want to hold on to. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Coach Perkins, what do you got? Who impresses you? You know, I would say it's the person that can persevere and keep moving forward despite the circumstances, despite everything that they see in front of them, the obstacles, whether it's the latest CAT scan that just came in or what their their bank account is showing or what, you know, the the you know, what their boss just told them in their last one in one. It's that person that still says I could get this done. I can accomplish this. I'm not letting this get, I'm not letting this stop me. Yeah. That determination. I like that. And and, and as you mentioned that, Lason, I'm just thinking, you know, there, there's probably two things that I'm most impressed by the more that I have a little bit of time to think about it, Jeff. Uh, the first obviously is kindness. And I think that's something that, that is, you know, but the other is toughness. And we used to define in our program, toughness is consistency in adversity. Are you the same guy after you miss a three as after you made the three? The same guy after a good call as you are after a bad call. But I think that those are the things that, honestly, I probably did see in my wife, that, that, that she is the same person and just as kind and just as focused on the right things, regardless of circumstance. Okay, Sean, Friday afternoon, you've had a, a long week in working with uh, corporate clients. Uh, what's on the grill and what's in the glass? Oh man! Well, you have uh, you have caught me in what's a, a pretty simple question because as much as I would love a steak, I'm probably a cheeseburger guy, and uh, and uh, while my wife has probably had me trying a little bit of red wine, I am very definitely far more a natural light guy than anything else. <laughs>
Uh, hey, that works for us. I'm, I'm always I'm always down for a good cheeseburger. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so you know, happiness in the simple things. Sean, tell us where we can find. Uh, you mentioned earlier, but I want to give you a chance again to to share with our, our listeners where they can find your books, oh, your, your content, and, and your programs. Love the conversation. I do hope that your audience has taken a, a couple of things that they might be able to apply in their programs or with their teams and their circumstances. Uh, if I can ever be a resource, please feel free to reach out to me. You can find me at greatresultsteambuilding.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Sean Glaze, you know, Twitter, Instagram, stuff like that is at lead your team. And as I mentioned, if they went to Great Results Team Building and signed up for access to that team toolbox of resources, there's all kinds of goodies there you can use with your team to build connections, to download and, uh, and implement your program. And again, if I uh, could ever be of service to you, you're looking for a Catalyst event uh, to be able to establish some of those things in your program in terms of values and accountability and trust and, uh, and real leadership development uh, would be absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to help you make your team even better. Jeff, Sean, any, go yeah. ahead. No, Jeff, go ahead. I was going to hand it off. No, I was going to say uh, I've been fortunate to be around a lot of wise people. And Sean, I'm on my third page of nuggets and quotes and uh, tonight's been great. You've shared real life, but in a way that I think people should definitely take advantage of all you have to offer and, you know, just your wisdom and even a young coach who might not feel comfortable reaching out to a peer, you're a safe zone filled with so much knowledge that they can take advantage of. Layson, this has been great. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on and, and, you know, my purpose has honestly been, you know, from the time that I started is I know the many potholes that I stepped in as a young guy. And if I can be the person to someone else that I needed when I was a young leader, then that is a huge win. Great. Again, thanks, Sean. Thank you for being a part of this. Listeners, thank you for joining us today on this episode of the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X's and O's. Again, if, if we're bringing value to you, please like and subscribe uh, on the uh, uh, on the, the player that you listen to for your for your podcast. And again, we're always open to feedback, any suggestions, ideas you have for us. Please reach out to us and uh, we will uh, look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media.